Well, let's open our Bibles to Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 10. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 10, many years ago, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King made this statement, and he said that the, uh, that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Do you know what he meant by that? He meant that of all the places that we should see the diversity of God's creation among people, every color and uh, ethnicity is, should be reflected among God's people. And so when we think about prejudice, there's more than just racist prejudice. There's all sorts of prejudices. And in Acts chapter 10, we see how God broke down uh, some walls of prejudice uh, that were dominant in the Jewish faith and the Jewish community. And so now you have these believers. Now they're uh, faithful in Christ. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and God is expanding his church. But God is expanding his church to all peoples. Uh, and so we're going to talk about uh, breaking down the walls of prejudice. And as I said, there's multiple ways that we see prejudice. The one that always comes to mind, you know, the first one is racism. And certainly that is something that God's word does not in any way condone. Sadly, in histories, whether it's in uh, our country and others, that sadly the Bible has been used to justify racism. And that certainly is never, ever accepted. Someone uh, judging or isolating a person or a people's based on the pigmentation of their skin. Think about how stupid that is. Really. All right? And, uh, or a nationality. Uh, but then there's also cultural prejudice. Uh, there's cultural prejudice that we think because of our particular economic status that we're better than one group or another group. Uh, we look down upon somebody, somebody uh, maybe because of uh, education or lack of education or social standing of who they mix with or who they, uh, who they, where they live nearby. We have cultural prejudices that certainly we have to uh, consider that are, are, are those divisions. Political, um, when Christians insist that there is, you know, a specific Christian political view, there is certainly things on moral issues that we, we, we do take stands, and we, you know, because, again, those are reflected in the Bible, but uh, the Bible really doesn't have a lot to say about whether you're for NAFTA. I mean, if you don't know what that is, you'll have to look that up. I mean, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about, um, you know, certain policies. I mean, you, you get what I'm saying, but sometimes we draw those distinctions that, there are people that if they have a different understanding or a different political view, that uh, certainly we can be agreeable to be disagreeable as Christians. There's nothing wrong with that, as Teresa said, and that was a great setup, that song in which you said, and we can have disagreements, but let's do it in a civil way. That seems to be lost in our culture today, doesn't it? And all sides, all are guilty. Uh, there's theological prejudice. There's uh, view, different views uh, among Christians uh, where we divide over what we would call non-essential issues. We certainly will divide among the core beliefs of the gospel, but there are certainly diversity of views among churches and believers that have different understandings. Uh, when we draw a denominational line and make division where that's more important than loving and caring for our brother or sister, and, and so again... There are all sorts of prejudices that we need to consider other than just racial prejudice. Anytime we categorize a people or isolate them, uh, we're making a prejudgment. And, you know, that's always, that's always dangerous. I'm guilty of that. You're guilty of that. Um, when we prejudge somebody, we may look at somebody and say, well, I just know they're guilty. Look at their family. Look at where they live. Look at their background. We're prejudging because of prejudices. As much as we think we know something because we watch NCIS and, you know, we know all the, you know, crime shows and we think we know everything. No, we prejudge. Let's be honest. Sometimes we prejudge people because of their, their tattoos or their metal in their ears. And now it's, you know, everywhere. Uh, and, and we make those prejudgments. We may not like it. It may not be our thing. 
But we have to consider that those things are not always helpful to just categorize and pigeonhole people based on their looks or their personality or appearance. Here's the bottom line that we want to address today is that for God to use us as a church, as a people, for God to use us effectively, uh, we need to make sure we break down our prejudices. And so in Acts chapter 10, the story of the gospel is spreading beyond Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus said, you'll start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the latter part was what? To the other parts of the earth, to the, all, to the world. For God so loved, what? He loved my neighborhood. He loved America. No, he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves his creation. God made us all in the image of God. And whether somebody is antagonistic or makes you upset or, or pushes every button you have, remember this, they are an image bearer of God. Everyone is made in the image of God. The most hostile, rebellious among us is made in the image of God, and we need to make sure that we understand that. Here's the big idea, and they'll put this on the screen this morning just to kind of give us a little roadmap as we walk through this. Um, we, are all, we all have sinful prejudices. We need just to admit, we all have sinful prejudices that God must break down if we are going to be effective in representing Jesus Christ and advancing his kingdom on the earth. That's what we want to look at this morning, admitting that we all have sinful prejudice of some form or some kind. Now, the context in Acts chapter 10, it's a, I mean, it's the entirety of chapter 10, and it gets over into chapter 11. It's one that I think it might be next to Stephen. I haven't actually figured the verses, but I believe it's actually longer, the longest narrative in the book of Acts. So that's telling us something. There's like seven different scenes here. Now, we're not going to do all that today. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest, and we're going to make some application. I know you appreciated me, but you don't appreciate me that much to keep you here all afternoon, all right? But we're going to kind of just get to the, the core of what God's Word is teaching in, in, this, in, in this section, very long section. And again, I would encourage you to read through it. It's very easy, you know, again, to read. It's a very wonderful narrative in these various scenes. But here's what's going on. You got two individuals involved. You got a man by the name of Cornelius and, of course, the apostle Peter. Now, it starts off with this Cornelius, and he's praying. The Bible talks about, and we'll look at this in a verse in a few minutes, and uh, he's praying and asking God, uh, and he is someone who is a God-fearer, and he seems to be respectful of, of Judaism, which is unusual because, one, he is stationed in Caesarea, which is kind of the the headquarters of where the governor of Judea stayed. And there was the governor of Judea had like a thousand regiments there. And he's kind of a captain of one of these regiments. So he's a very high, prominent official. He's not a Jew. He is a Gentile. And keep that in mind. That's really a big deal in how God breaks down this wall. And then you have Peter that God is, uh, is, is using, and he's going to speak to him to go and, uh, and, and give him a heads up about this Cornelius, this Gentile, this Roman centurion. If you know anything about uh, Jewish history, you know that the Jews hated the Romans. They were an occupying power. They were corrupt. They were dominating. They were to be feared. They, they ruled with an iron fist. And so uh, Jew, the Jewish people despised them. In fact, what's interesting that this story is sets up in Caesarea is about 70 years before Jesus was born, uh, there was a mass murder of Jews by Gentiles, non-Jews, in Caesarea. So just think about it. God, in his, in his ways of doing things, is going to break down barriers, and he doesn't just use anybody, but he used somebody who's the very symbol of, of prejudice, if you want to call it that, of, of hatred by the Jewish people. And it just remind, should remind us, before we say too much, here and forget, is do not underestimate God's working in the very people that you think are unreachable. Didn't we see that with Paul? 
Think, oh, Saul, that's Saul. He's a murderer. Uh, so God has a way. He's working behind the scenes. He's orchestrating events and bringing these two people together. And by bringing them together, he's going to break down a significant wall of prejudice and division and, and division. and that is so necessary for the advancement of the gospel. Okay? This is not just a Jewish gospel. It's not just a Gentile gospel. Gentile, you know, is non-Jew. It's a gospel that's for everyone. Look at the scripture in Ephesians. And I'm using the New Living Translation this morning. The New Living Translation, Ephesians 3, 6, should be on the screen. And it says, and this is God's plan. Say God's plan. God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news of the gospel Share equally, say equally, in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings. Why? Because they belong to Christ Jesus. I mean, is that not clear? Hello? Are you, are you unsure? Is this something you're in doubt? Is that clear? I mean, that we are one in Christ and divisions, whether it's culturally or ethnically or racially or education, whatever those barriers are, are uh, demolished because all ground is what? Level at the foot of the cross. Amen? So I want to just pray, and then we're going to look at four quick observations, four lessons here as we kind of go over this through a kind of fly over this big chunk of Scripture and before we do that, let's pray. Father, I just pray that you'd, Lord, give us hearts that, Lord, are hungry for truth, God, and how none of us are here, God, are perfect, and we have it all together in these areas, but God, how, uh, Lord, you desire transformation of the whole man, the whole woman, the whole person, God, that every part of our life is, should be in conformity, Lord, to the wonderful truth of your word. And so, Lord, let the words of my mouth the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Four things I want to point out to you this morning, and then I have something I want, you, I want to show you at the end of the message. Number one, these are uh, just real simple, is one, number one, we need to get real. We need to get real that we are all prone to prejudice of some form, okay? And if you say you're not, then we need to do a lesson on lying, all right? We are all, and again, don't just think that prejudice has to do with race. There's all different ways that we do it all the time. And maybe, maybe I'm just being, but there's times when you look at somebody and you just make a quick judgment about that person. And so we need to admit that we're all prone. And that, that certainly uh, is something that we need to address. And, and again, it's not just race. Look at verses 9 through 14, and I'm going to kind of go a little backwards here of how God used Peter to prepare him to go to Cornelius' house and how God had to give him this vision. Okay, look at verses 9 through 14. It says, the next day, as Cornelius' messengers, we'll go back and read the previous verses in a moment, but the next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, God gave this vision to Cornelius. We'll see that in a minute. Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. That was very common and still is in uh, the eastern part of the world. It was oftentimes a place in which uh, they could get away from the crowd downstairs. They could get a nice breeze set up on the roof and, 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 uh, and just kind of have that extra area there to enjoy the sights. And, and it was about noontime, and he was hungry. How many of you know that when you're hungry... You don't go shopping. You ever go to Publix? See, I said Publix. I didn't say anybody else. Uh, uh, but you ever go shopping wherever you go, and you're hungry, and everything looks good, right? Even the dog food aisle, you're like, man, maybe, you know. No. I mean, you're so he's up there praying, and he was hungry. And it says, now, while a meal was being prepared... He fell into a trance. Man, he must have really, maybe really hungry. But God put him in a trance, and he saw the sky opening, and something like a large sheet, it was like a large sheet, of, almost like a screen was let down by its four corners, and in this sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. And again, what is in this vision here is these are all animals that the Bible in uh, the book of Leviticus is the main place, chapter 11, spells out 
uh, what is unclean and clean animals. Some of you are familiar, and this is a little different, but, the, but similar. You've heard of something being kosher. In other words, there are strict dietary laws that uh, our, our Jewish brethren maintain, and that all roots back to the book of Leviticus. Part of their identity wasn't just circumcision and, and uh, the worship and all the things, but part of it was their identity was their actual dietary laws or what they could eat and what they could not eat. That wasn't, that wasn't optional. That was a big deal, okay? And so he sees all these animals, and these are all the animals that, that he's like, those are, those are not what are in the book of Leviticus I'm supposed to eat. Verse 13, that a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. And if you're an animal rights activist, I don't know how, what you do with that. But anyway, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Uh, verse 14, he says, no, Lord. Now get that. What a, that's an oxymoron. Now I know you, you know what a moron is. You, you might be looking at one. But anyway, but you know what an oxy is? It's when you see two words that are contradictory. No, Lord. Think about that. How's that work, all right? But he says, no, Lord. And Peter declared, he's a good Jewish young man. He's a, he, was, he was bar mitzvahed, and he's, he's never strayed from these. I mean, this is just embedded in their very identity. He says, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. That's a very truthful statement. He never strayed from that. Wasn't, wasn't allowed in the command. I mean, there just wasn't, there wasn't... Uh, Sonny's Barbecue and all those pl good places to eat. Now, see, I just messed some of you up by mentioning that now. And what's interesting is, is that here we have on the flip side, we have this Cornelius. We're going to look at him in a moment. Uh, is that God is having to deal with him. Here is a Roman centurion, and God, through this angel, speaks to him to go and find this uneducated Jew to teach him spiritual things. I mean, if he was a Roman centurion, he probably traveled in much more significant circles as far as his lifestyle and, and, uh, and economic class or whatever. Why would he go to some uneducated Jew who's staying with a guy named Simon the Tanner? Do you know what a tanner is? They deal with animal skins and carcasses probably a smelly place, and that was problematic for a Jew because dead animals and death was something that would make a good Jew unclean. And Peter's staying in his house, right? Uh, if you read, read what's going on there. And so God's having to work in this Cornelius with his issues and prejudices. Here's the point, is that we've all got to face and be realistic and saying, God, yeah, there are some things in which I look at people or a certain group of people or a certain class of people or I see people in the store and I immediately make a judgment by what they look like, how they're dressed, how their hair is made or whatever it is. And say, God, I, I, you know, I admit, I admit that I'm, 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 I've got to work through that. Now, Peter could, as he said, he said, I've, I've never violated the, the, the laws. He could use the Bible to justify his prejudices. And, you know, as I said earlier, um, you know, we, we have unfortunately misused the Bible to justify prejudices. If you go back in history, there's a whole slew of quote-unquote Christian writers that justified slavery and used biblical passages and texts and terminology, and you say, well, that was just the culture of its day. I understand that, but let's just be real. It was sinful. It was wrong. It was just wrong. I'm not saying that we have to accept and be tolerant of sins, of what the Bible calls sins, but if you're prejudiced against Hispanics or African-Americans... How are you going to impact or how do you expect you to be faithful with the gospel in your life? You're just not. Um, if you hate a certain class or group of people or certain uh, people, as I said, whether you pigeonhole them in this group or that group, how are you going to be effective in being a light of the gospel? And these are some of the things that we have to just be honest and be real. Secondly, is that once we have our prejudices, we have to overcome. Secondly, we need to get recast. Recast, that means 
We need to get on God's purposes and his vision. God is gracious to gently break us of our prejudices so that he can work through us. Aren't you glad that God is patient and gentle with us and and is teaching us as we say, God, conform me to your likeness. Conform me to who you are. Give me your heart, God. Yeah, maybe my granddaddy and maybe my daddy. And that's just sometimes, you know, I hear this say, well, that's just the way we were raised. That's not an excuse. That's not an excuse. That's no good. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have a new master. Well, you know, it's like people will say, well, I've just had a fiery temple because I'm Irish. Baloney. Baloney. You have a fiery temple because you're a sinner. And, you, you, and you, you refuse to submit that impulsive anger under the cross and under the blood. Quit blaming the nation of Ireland for your sin. They sent me a note. Stop. <laughs> but we need to get recast. In other words, we need to get remolded into God's purpose and God's agenda. That's what he's doing in Acts chapter 10. He's not just saying, you know, the church just stay the way you are. He's saying, look, my vision is bigger. My vision is further than anything, and you need to get recast. I know, Peter, the way you were raised. I know how you were taught. Those are laws that I put in for the Jewish people in that particular uh, place and time as part of their separate identity to identify them as a, as a people that were, were called by my name. I get all that, but God says, I'm doing something new. I'm doing something different, and you need to get on in what I'm doing. And so there's a recasting. Look at, we're gonna, now we're going to flip back to Cornelius. Look at verses 1 through 6 of, of Acts chapter 10, and here we pick up backwards. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment, a very, uh, a very uh, kind of elite group. It says he was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. Now, when you see things like that, it just means that based on what he knew, understood, he had a, there must have been, and we don't want to read too much into it, but he seemed to have a devotion to uh, the God of Israel, that there's, there was somehow, maybe in his back, it doesn't tell us, it doesn't tell us how he came to this, but he wasn't a pa- pagan Roman who was worshiping Caesar, but he was, but he was uh, leaning in and favorable in his own personal walk. And it says that uh, he gave generously to the poor and he prayed regularly to God. I take that means he prayed reg- regularly to the real God, Okay. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said, and Cornelius stared at him in terror. Yes, I would be in terror too. What is it, sir? I love that, sir. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he's, he's used to being a man under authority. He asked the angel, what is it, sir? And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now, I love that. That just reminds us that God looks upon the heart, doesn't he? Now, again, don't misunderstand. Uh, Cornelius wasn't a believer. He yet to embrace the gospel and receive Christ. So don't make it sound like that this is a works-oriented type of salvation. Otherwise, God would just say, hey, you're good. God bless you. And the angel would have left. And Peter, it was necessary for Peter, because if you read on, Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius, shared the gospel not only with his household, but shared the gospel with all his friends and pals that came around. And, they, and we see later on, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and later were baptized, okay? So Cornelius is not some prototype of just people that are out there that God accepts outside of the gospel or Christ, that everyone needs to come under the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and to have Christ in their life. And so God is orchestrating these events and all these things, but he just acknowledges that here is a man who's a seeker after truth, and he sought what he was able to do. He sought what he knew, and God honored that, and God blessed that. You with me? You're not sure. You're not sure, but this is a, this is a big deal. Don't, don't rewrite Christianity, all right? This is, this is what's going on here. Yeah, there's breaking down walls, but the biggest wall that needs to be broken down is a wall of the sinful heart by the cross of Christ. That's the ultimate wall, all right? And if we miss that, we miss the point of what is going on here. 
And so God is working through, he's recasting, as I said, he, he, he could have just had the angel, right? Wouldn't it have been more convenient <coughs> if he just had the angel share the gospel with him? I mean, I mean, the angel could have told him all about Christ and receiving Jesus, but God doesn't do that. He, he uses redeemed sinners like you and me that are his messengers, that are his voices to tell people about Jesus. God could have just wrote on the sky, John 3, 16. He could have just done like he did with the Israelites with manna and just had like manna was, was, was uh, you know, dropped from the sky and, and he could have just had gospel tracts dropped everywhere. It would have been a massive phenomenon. Uh, that would have been covered and, and dropped Bibles or, or had, had the, the, the television overpowered by the Holy Spirit and it was, just, it was just, you know, the Word of God or had Jesus on the screen. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but how did God do what he's done is he's ordained us to tell someone. He's ordained us. He's, he's, he's motivated us because of our changed life. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And so God's working, stretching, going to stretch Cornelius out of his comfort zone. But then we have Peter. He's got to get recast in on God's agenda. And he's going to get stretched out of his comfort zone. And his comfort zone, he wanted to obey God. And so he's working, God's working with Cornelius and Peter. And he's going to bring them together in a marvelous way. Thankfully, I love the fact that God gradually works with us, that God understands our, our, our mindsets, you know, that I don't know about you, but I haven't been changed overnight. Have you? And I'm still changing. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I'm still confessing. I mean, you know, and I'm thankful for what we call progressive sanctification. That just is a big fancy word that means that I'm growing day by day into the likeness of Christ. And that every part of my life, my thinking, all this, these prejudices or whatever it is, or my actions that are, that are not godly, I need to bring them all under the conformity of being Christ-like. And that's a daily work, and I'll be doing that till the day I die. And if you're under the illusion that you're going to hit perfection at some point in your life, let me just pop that bubble right now. It's not going to happen. You're going to, till the day you die, you're going to have to say no to sin in the power of the Holy Spirit. Till you draw your last breath, you're going to be fighting sin in your life. And the only time you're going to be perfect is when you're in the presence of Jesus under, with a new body, right? Some of you aren't sure. So quit trying to strive for perfection. There's only one perfect, and we are under Christ. We live in Christ. We are in Christ, Christ in us. That's our perfection, right? Notice with me, and I think I have a page out of order here. Oh, oh good, thank you. I just had it out of order. I hope I didn't misprint it. Notice thirdly. Actually, this is a great verse that goes great here. Look at Revelation 5, 9. It should be on the screen if we need any other evidence, look at Revelation 5, 9. It speaks about this, this, this recasting that ultimately will be evidence in the new heaven and the new earth with Jesus ruling and reigning where it speaks about how they sang a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from where? Every tribe and language and people and nation. My friend, if you have a hard time being with somebody who is a different ethnicity or race here today, you're going to be in big trouble because you're going to spend eternity with the, our brothers and sisters. Amen. Thirdly is get realigned. What do we do when God confronts our prejudice and he wants to recast us? We need to get realigned. When God confronts our prejudice, we must yield in obedience to him. I don't have this on the screen but in Acts chapter 10, I hope you have your Bibles. Make sure I'm not preaching heresy. But Acts chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. Uh, verse 14, I read it earlier, but it's just when Peter says, I've never, ever, uh, 
eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared unclean. And so that's, Peter was a little bit confused at how all of a sudden now is given this new revelation here, and he protests, uh, but, but, but God is realigning his thinking. God needs to realign our thinking. Our thinking needs to be that which is gospel thinking, which is new covenant thinking. Uh, it needs to be realigned based upon the truth of the Word of God and not the whimsical views of a fallen culture. Peter put it into immediate application. Look at verses 24 through 29. Peter answered when he was, Cornelius sent some men to go get him. He could have thought, well, you know, I don't really hang out with those type of people. But you know what he did? He obeyed God. Obedience without delay. Verse 24, uh, and so when they spent the night with Peter, he was staying at Simon the Tanner, and they went the next day, and it says uh, they arrived in Caesarea the following day. Peter and these men that Cornelius sent, they've gone back to Caesarea now. And Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. You see how God is just setting this thing up? And as Peter entered his home, which was a big deal for a Jew to enter into a Gentile's home and especially socialize and eat with them, he even acknowledges that. And Peter entered his home and Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. And I love that Peter said, uh, please kiss my ring. Thank you. <laughs> Peter's not the first pope or any pope. But Peter pulled him up and said, I love this, stand up. I'm just a human being just like you. Now think about the pregnancy of that phrase. He's saying to a Roman Gentile pagan in his view, and he's acknowledging we are equal before God. Do you see what he's saying there? That's a big statement. And this is even cool too. And so they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. Verse 28. And here's Peter just up front with them. Peter told them what they already knew, I'm sure. You know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or associate with you. That was a factual statement. Peter wasn't being rude. That was just, that was just everybody kind of probably knew that. But I love this. But God has shown me. But God has shown me. What has God shown you that brought down a wall of predisposed thinking about people or a situation but God has shown you. But God has shown me that I should no longer, look at this, God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for, now tell me what you want. <laughs> Basically, that's what he says here. Notice the last thing. We're all prone to prejudice. God graciously breaks us of that sin to work through us. His purpose is to advance the gospel among the nations for his glory. And when he confronts us of our prejudices, whatever it is, whatever the justification that we've made, their only response is to obey and say, but God has shown me something different and to get recast, realigned, and fourthly, get reassigned. Get reassigned. When we yield to the Lord and repent of our prejudices, He will use us as effective witnesses for His gospel. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Black, brown, yellow, white, pink, whatever you want to, you fill it in. We've all fallen short. We all need a gospel, regardless of where we're born, regardless of who our mama or daddy was, regardless of our economic status, our culture, 
whether we're raising a house, a trailer, or an outhouse. We all need Jesus. And the gospel breaks down all those barriers and walls. At least it should. And when we come to these things, we should get reassigned and saying, like Peter, Peter, essentially, if I could paraphrase, Peter's saying, Jesus, I want to get on board with what you're doing. See, Peter, I mean, the guy could say some wild things and be erratic, but you know, when the day is done, you know what, what, where we find Peter? Peter's right there. He may have been a little slow. He may have misunderstood, but guess what? Peter is on board. He is, when he told Jesus in John 6 and, and all those so-called followers of Jesus who got a free meal and they wanted to make Jesus king, and then when Jesus began to lay down the terms of what it meant to be a disciple, to be a follower of him, the crowd did what? See ya. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, do you want to leave as well? Peter said, where can we go? Where can we go? You and you alone have the words of life. I love Peter. And he says, Lord, I'm in this for the long haul. I'll, I'll get me reassigned. You're going to blow away everything I've been taught, everything I've learned. But I'm on your agenda. I'm on your schedule. I want to get on board of what you're doing and advancing your purposes. And I believe that is what God calls us to do. Look at verse 34, Acts chapter 10. And then Peter replied, but I see when, when God says, now what he, he said, and after he had this, his having this dialogue with Cornelius, he says, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. That's a, that's a, I mean, that's a big deal for this Jewish guy to be saying that. He says, I see that God shows no favoritism in every nation. He accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news, the gospel for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now, see, Peter wasn't saying something that was out of whack with what the Old Testament taught, because if you remember the covenant he made with Abraham, he told Abraham, through your seed, you will be a blessing to all the nations. Do you remember that? How was that going to happen? It was because through Abraham's seed, Messiah would come forth. And that's the blessing of all the nations. God is saving nations. He's saving people. Peter, Peter I love this. As he's talking, he didn't even get a chance to finish his little sermon that he had written up on the roof because the Holy Spirit interrupted I know you're thinking, that might be a good thing to do every once in a while here. Look at verse 44. Even as Peter was saying these things, he was in the middle of point number three. And the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter, they were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles because that just wasn't in their thinking. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. And if you read it, they got baptized. So God does things kind of out of order. Wait a minute. They're supposed to be water baptized, and then this happens, and that happens. No, God, God does his own thing, his own way. Because you see, one of the things I think what happened here is because this was such a paradigm, a realignment type of shifting change, is that God wanted to make a non-disputable proof that they were accepted by him by filling them with the Holy Spirit with the sign of speaking in tongues so that it was clear to everybody, Jew and Gentile, that these people were saved and were accepted by God. But he dispute because even the Jewish believers who were accompanying Peter said, yeah, thank you, the message translation. What's up? <laughs> What's up with this? How's this, how's this kosher? No pun intended, right? These people are accepted by God. One of the, uh, as you know, uh, did a message last year when Billy Graham died, and one of the things that I love about the story of Billy Graham and his legacy is that uh, early on, that Billy Graham in the 50s, 
early 60s, uh, that it was very common and acceptable for uh, crusades, churches, even still today, you'll still find some outlying churches that still are very segregated. If a person of a different color wants to join the church, they, you know, they just they have all sorts of issues with that. And uh, they might as well just write Ichabod on that church because the presence of God is not in somewhere like that. But, but Billy Graham was a pioneer and took a stand and said, especially when he went to, was going to organize a, a revival uh, uh, in Chattanooga. And they said, well, you know, uh, uh, we, all of our crusade, you come down here, they have to be segregated. And Billy Graham said, uh, no, I won't come if that's how it's going to be. And so they gave him their word that they would not have segregated seating, whites on one side and African Americans on the other. And he got down there and somebody came to him and said, they've roped off and have sections. They, they broke their word. And Billy Graham said, tell them to take it down or I'm leaving tonight. Now, again, this isn't like in 1984. See, a lot of people got on board when it was safe and the price wasn't as high. But I want to show you this video clip. I'm going to give them a minute to adjust the lights. But I want to show you this video clip, and I timed it so we'd still be out at a decent time. And, but I want you to see this, because some of you don't know your own history in in the church and, and, and some of the legacy, and uh, some of you need to be reminded. I look at uh, Billy Graham in context of what we talked about. It's kind of a modern-day Peter in breaking down some walls. So give your attention uh, to the screen, and they're going to show this for a moment, and then we're going to pray and be dismissed. The year was 1953. America's borders were filled with racial tension and uncertainty. The Reverend Billy Graham was sailing uncharted territory when he did the unthinkable. He held a crusade in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where thousands of men, women, and children of all races sat together and worshiped the Lord. But when God looks at you, he doesn't look on the outward appearance. The Bible says he looks upon the heart. Turned up a little bit. He took his fight to end segregation to the streets. Graham had been preaching here at Madison Square Garden to thousands nightly but very few blacks came. So at the suggestion of a colleague, he asked Reverend Howard Jones for help. Jones recommended that Graham take his message to the streets of New York, and that's exactly what he did. I decided I was never gonna speak to any more segregated audiences. And he said, I want it to be that way. He said, what would you suggest that we do? I said, if blacks aren't coming, go where they are. He said, what do you mean? I said, go to Harlem. Graham preached at Salem Methodist Church to thousands. The next week, he went to Brooklyn. And slowly but surely, the Crusades in New York became increasingly integrated. Prominent singer Ethel Waters attended the event and rededicated her life to Christ. Graham even invited his good friend, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to attend one of the events. We thank thee this evening for the marvelous things which have been done in this city through the dynamic preaching of this great evangelist, we ask thee, O oh God, to continue blessing him, give him continued power and authority. And as we listen to him tonight, grant that our hearts and spirits will be open to the divine inflow. Graham faced a flurry of criticism from both blacks and whites, but that did not deter him. Some whites want to know why you would fool around with these people, you know. And some said, if you're going to integrate your team, we will not support you. We will not give you money. So they used all kind of pressures on him. But he said, I don't care. I'm going to stick by my guns. Some of the criticisms were that uh, uh, Mr. Graham was not concerned about the, the black community and that he didn't speak enough about civil rights. Graham went to Dr. King for advice. Martin Luther King uh, suggested to me that I stay in the stadiums in the South and hold integrated meetings because he was probably going to take to the streets. He said, I'll probably stay in the streets and I might get killed in the streets. But he said, I don't think you ought to because he said, uh, you will be able to do things I can't do, and I can do some things you can't do, but we're after the same objective. And so he did, holding crusades from Arkansas to Alabama. So here we were, with neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood in my state, on the verge of violence. 
and yet tens of thousands of black and white Christians there together in a football stadium. And when he issued the call at the end of the message, thousands came down holding hands, arm in arm, crying. It was the beginning of the end of the Old South in my home state. I will never forget it. He even went to South Africa, preaching before an integrated audience in 1973. Graham also worked closely with Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, urging them to ensure equality for all. Then there's the race problem. And this problem, it seems to me, should be put in its proper perspective. It is a world problem. Greater improvement is being made today in America than perhaps any great nation in the history of the world because we at least are attempting to solve the problem through understanding, through dialogue, through legislation. In the end, Graham's legacy is one that is filled with a message of love, togetherness, and unity. But I think Billy has proven the fact that uh, in Christ, there's no east or west or north, north or south. We just love him. Charlene Israel, CBN News. How many, of you, how many of you did not know? How many of you didn't know some of that story? How many of you that was new? That was new. And make sure you understand, one of the things I think is the subtle way that the enemy can get distracting is for believers to make this a, a political thing. The church, the gospel of Jesus, is a powerful force, if I could say it that way. The gospel of Jesus transcends politics and any divisions. You know why? Because when a man or a woman's life is transformed and changed by the gospel, if they were a crooked lawyer, guess what? The gospel is going to change them and be an honest, an honest one. If they were a stealing plumber, thieving and ripping people off, guess what? If the gospels transform their life, they're going to be a change. They're going to be an honest plumber. You get the idea that if you want to see the nation, if you want to see America changed, it Yes, we are privileged to live in a free country where we can participate, but do not rest your hope and confidence on the ballot box. Vote, be informed, be educated, absolutely. There's never an election I have not voted in. I believe in that. But don't put your confidence in a political party or a political person. That's idolatry. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that will change America. And so what do we do? We live and represent Jesus, and we need to pray. We need to pray. And I don't mean just pray prayers to make America the biggest and baddest nation in the world. Pray that we would be and remain that light on the hill, shining, and as a beacon of hope for others to see that, this, that America is a place where freedom can be, but also in which the freedom of people that know God, that love Christ, can come and worship God and be a nation in which justice... Read the prophets sometimes. You think justice is not an issue in the Bible? Read the prophets sometime. That's about a lot of all that they talked about was justice. Justice and the gospel are not enemies. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes people, and it's people that are transformed by the gospel that change their nation. Let me close with just these final thoughts. We must make sure that we preach and teach a gospel that is a gospel for all people, regardless of culture and race. And I go back to what Peter said in verse 34, God is not a God of favoritism. Secondly, we must preach and teach, and I would even add, combat prejudice in the church. Is there still prejudice in the American church? You bet there is. You say, well, I don't know where it is. Probably you're white, and you don't know anything about it. I'm just being real with you. That may offend some of you, but let's be honest. We sometimes talk about things we've never experienced. 
But I bet if I asked our African-American black people of color that are right here right now, have you experienced racism in the American church in your lifetime? I would be shocked if there was a person who didn't say yes, yes. Is it subtle? Yes. Is it something that we need to be conscious of? Yes. But it's something that we need. You know how you combat it? You combat it by telling people the truth. That, again, what we just talked about today, that the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to change my thinking. It needs to change the way I look at people. It needs to change the way I approach people. Does that mean that everything is going to be perfect, my friend? There's only going to be one moment in history and time that everything is perfect, and that's when Jesus Christ puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and has come to rule and reign forever. And in the meantime, we're in the, we're in the not yet. We're in the not yet phase. But yet, we are still called to tell people about Christ and see the gospel break down these walls. We shouldn't tolerate prejudice in this church in any form or fashion by a member or a leader. Never should tolerate it. Thirdly, we must humbly repent individually and corporately for the sin of prejudice and fleshly division. We need to ask the Spirit of God to transform our sinful mindsets into kingdom mindsets so that we can say that there's Galatians 3.28, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, pastor, I'm glad you're talking about my neighbor because I'm glad I don't have any of those issues, right? Let me ask you a radical prayer request. Pray and say, Lord, are there areas in my life in which I just I need to have a realignment in your thinking? Is there areas in my life that maybe I prejudge people and I'm quick to judge people and I'm quick to just assume that I know what I'm talking about, about people who have suffered prejudice and racism and cultural prejudice? And, and I look at people and I, and I just make judgments and I immediately kind of have this wall in my life. You know what? If you're honest and open to obeying the truth, you know what God's going to do? He's going to put some people in your life and put around you, just like he took Peter and he sent him to Cornelius, and he had to walk the talk. It'd be great to have a vision. We came to the altar and repented of all this stuff. Woo, boy, that's glad. No, God says, now let's put it into practice. Let the church... What do we see here? The church was exemplifying what it says. You know why people don't take us seriously? Because sometimes we don't walk what we say. And I realize that it all goes back. That we're all sinners, saved by grace, and are being saved by grace. And the hope, as we see in this last scripture that I'll put on the screen... In Revelation 7, 9 through 12, look at this vision. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. Do you see any segregated seating there? They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they're shouting with a great roar. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshiped God. And they sang, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving with honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen.